Pastor for Riverwood, I'm glad that you're here joining us, and now that you can hear me, I know that those of you online can hear me as well. Uh, welcome, glad you guys are a part of our worship gathering today. When I was in fourth grade, my teacher made a recommendation to my parents, and that is that I should get to the eye doctor. Uh, my seat was in the back of the room, and apparently I was squinting in order to see the chalkboard. And so we made the appointment, and the uh, eye doctor agreed with my teacher, and I got my very first prescription eyeglasses. And suddenly, I could see not only the chalkboard, but I could see the scoreboard at the football game. I could recognize my classmate across the playground. Like, I suddenly discovered I had been missing out on a lot of the beauty of the world. I, I didn't realize just how fuzzy everything had become. Things were really, really blurry. But when I put those glasses on, everything became clear. The ancient Jews studied the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And as they studied it, they were discovering that there was this Messiah that was to come. But as they read it, it was blurry. You know, you've heard the phrase, hindsight is twenty twenty, But to peer into the future, things are not clear. Now, they, they captured portions they, they began to see that, you know, this Messiah would be from Bethlehem. But yet there was also a passage where it seemed like he'd be from Nazareth. Uh, there, were, there were passages that showed this Messiah would be this great conquering king. But yet there were these, also these passages that seemed like a suffering servant. There, there were passages that said this Messiah would be divine. But other passages that seemed to indicate he'd be a man. And, and so it was really confusing. It was blurry. They did the best they could to put together the picture, but it just wasn't clear. Now, if you are a Christian, you know that you can look at those messianic passages in what they call the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And it is clear to you when you use the corrective lenses of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because suddenly you look at those passages and you see, yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth. Both were true. We see that he was a conquering king through his resurrection from the dead, but he was also a suffering servant by going through the cross. He was both. We see he was divine. We see it through his miracles. We see it through his teaching. But we also see that he was just a regular human as well, as we see it through his suffering, how he was hungry, how he was tired. It's crystal clear to us when we put on these corrective lenses of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The reason I bring this up today is in our series in Mark, we're coming to Mark chapter 13. When we read it, a lot of people see it and think it is about the end times. It's about the future. And so therefore, a lot of it is blurry. When we read it, there's parts of it that don't make sense. We're, we're kind of like those ancient Jews trying to look for the Messiah. We're, we're the same way as we look for the end of time. Now, there are some people who will tell you that they have Mark 13 all figured out. They're going to tell you that it's all about AD 70 and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that some today. There are others who say, well, a portion of it is about the destruction of the temple, but really a lot of it is about end times. And then there's others who say, now, it's all about the end times, nothing to do with the temple. And, and they're all convinced but the fact that none of them agree, even though many of them are very, very smart scholars, they, they have a high regard for the scriptures. They can make a really compelling argument for why they believe what they do. But the fact that they all disagree with one another just can, continues to make me feel like it's blurry. 
And so I am not going to pretend today that we're going to get done with Mark 13 and you're going to walk out today or you're going to log off and it is all going to make sense. I am not going to be your corrective lenses today. Now, hopefully when you walk out, there'll be portions of Mark 13 that maybe make more sense, but it's still blurry for me after spending time studying it this week. So I'm not going to figure you're going to have it all figured out as well. However, I do hope you at least see one thing clearly. That, that when we get done today, you'll see there is one thing in Mark 13 that stands out. It's the same thing that has been standing out throughout the entire book of Mark. I hope you walk out today very clearly seeing that Mark 13 is about Jesus. And that that today will encourage you and also challenge you no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. So as we get ready to go to Mark 13, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, guide my words today as we come to a difficult passage in uh, the word. May you be our teacher and guide. And Lord, any frustration we may have about some of this not making sense, may it lead us to trust you, to want to learn these things greater. But God, I pray also that these things would not become a distraction to that which is ultimately the most important. And that is your love for us shown through the person of Jesus and so, God, I pray you'd help us to see him clearly in this as we st- dive into this very blurry chapter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you brought a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up to Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the scripture on the screen. Uh, we're just absolutely dedicated to you being able to read and study right along with us. Um, I just really encourage you to get yourself a Bible. Now, at Riverwood, we do not mind digital Bibles. So if you have a Bible on your phone, feel free to pull that out. No one's going to accuse you of going and surfing Facebook or Instagram. Uh, use your Bible on your phone. But if you are like me and you're too addicted to your phone and you don't want to keep using that, then get yourself a paper Bible. If you're here in person, stop by our resource table. We've got two translations of the Bible. We'll find the one that'll fit you best. If you're on Online, just go to Walmart or go to Christianbook.com, get yourself a Bible, or even just give us your address. We will mail or, or drop a Bible off at your home, and that way you can have one. Because we want you to have it here on Sundays when we open this up together every single Sunday. But also, we want you to have it to open on Monday and Tuesday and any day of the week. We just fully believe that, that God in, is sending us into this broken world. He needs people, wants people to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. And part of what he does to accomplish that is he uses the scriptures. And so for you to become more like Jesus, it means getting into the scriptures and looking at the person of Jesus and having the writers help point you to, to Jesus and help you see just how much God loves you as well as the world so that he can then send you to be that blessing into the world. Mark 13, we're going to pick it up at verse 1. Uh, what we're about to read is known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, in a moment, you're going to hear that uh, this is the longest speech from Jesus, and it takes place in the Mount of Olives. Thus the name, the Olivet Discourse. But chapter 13, as we get ready to read it, I need you to realize this is the turning point in the book of Mark. In, in verse, chapters 1 through 12, we've been seeing the person of Jesus. All right, we've been seeing who he is in his character. We've been hearing him teach. We've been seeing his miracles. But chapter 13 is where things really begin to go dark. Kind of like a Harry Potter book. You know, they, they just got darker as they went. This is the place where things get dark. Where, where suddenly we're going to hear Jesus talk about some very scary things. And it is after this discourse that suddenly the events that lead to the cross begin to happen. And so 
we got to tune in and listen to this because this is where Mark makes the turning point. Moving from just focusing on the person of Jesus and his work to now his purpose. His purpose of going to the cross. So join me at verse 1. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, All right, we're going to push the pause button right there. Let's kind of figure out a little bit of what is going on. Last week, when we finished up chapter 12, we saw a story where Jesus was at the temple and he was watching people put their offerings in this area outside the court of women. There were these collection boxes and certain people were coming up, some of whom were rich, and they were putting in these free will offerings. It was different than the places where you'd come and bring your sacrifice or a grain offering. It, it, it was these free will offerings that were used to help pay for the, the functioning of the temple, but also to give to the poor. So think of it like as benevolence giving. So they're, they're giving. Well, in walks this very poor widow and she gives two little coins that we saw were worth next to nothing. And yet Jesus praises her for it because he knows how poor she is that what she just gave was everything that she had. And the reason that just touched Jesus so much is because here in a few weeks, Jesus is going to give everything he has. He's going to give his very life. And so this widow was doing a very Christ-like act in that moment. And Jesus drew the attention to it. But now they leave the temple. As they're walking out, making their way out of the city, one of the disciples, we don't know who, suddenly says, Jesus, look at these buildings. Look look at the stonework. Some of you might know that Jesus was a carpenter by trade before he became an itinerant preacher, a rabbi, traveling around doing his miracles and teaching. But as a carpenter in his day, Because there weren't just vast amounts of forest, he didn't work just with wood. He also would have worked with stone. And so perhaps this disciple, knowing Jesus had been a stone worker, is pointing out the stones. Like, isn't this so impressive? It's kind of like when me and my brother, every time we saw an old car, we'd go, Daddy, Daddy, look, because we'd found out he liked classic cars. Now, my dad actually had taste and didn't just like every, you know, classic car. But we didn't know that. We just knew daddy likes old cars. So, hey, look, there's kind of a cool one. Daddy, look at that. Maybe that's what's going on here. The disciples like, Jesus, you work with stone. Look at that stonework. But also, the temple had started to be built before Jesus was born. And here now, Jesus is roughly 33 years of age. And the building is still going on. And it is being massive And it was so well done that archaeologists and historians say that the temple could have been considered the eighth wonder of the world. Like, it was absolutely magnificent. And so I think this disciple is having a little bit of like a country boy view. You know, maybe grew up in in Galilee, you know, rural, and now he is in a big city. So kind of like an Iowa country boy seeing, you know, New York City for the very first time. He's just like, whoa. Or maybe it's like a city boy seeing the mountains for the first time. Wow. So he can't help but blurt out, Jesus, look at all of this. Isn't it impressive? And that's when Jesus says these startling words. Verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? 
There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. These words were so startling to the disciples. But I don't think we appreciate just how startling they would have been. It's because we don't have an equivalent of a temple in our day and age. You see, the temple was not just the center of religious activity for the Jewish people. Because they were a religion-based culture, it was sort of like the government seat in, in one sense. Uh, it, it was, uh, 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 the market was outside of it, so it was a, kind of the center of the economics as well. But it served as an icon. Like, they, they put a lot of their identity into this. Maybe for us, I'm assuming most all of you are Americans... Maybe for us, it would be like trying to take the, the National Cathedral, uh, maybe the, the White House, um, maybe like uh, the, the Congress, you know, uh, uh, building. And, and then let's just throw in like the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Memorial. All right, let's just try and combine all of that into one building. It becomes the center of our culture, of our nation. And now you hear it's going to be destroyed. Just like 9-11 was incredibly bothering bothersome, deeply frustrating, very shocking to Americans. That's what Jesus's words were like when he says that their iconic building, the center of their culture, their religion, their world is going to be destroyed. Well, then we see in verse three, Jesus and the disciples make their way up to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives were on a, a mountainside or a hillside that, that was east of Jerusalem. And so from where Jesus would have sat, he'd look out over the city. Uh, I found a picture of, uh, from uh, the Mount of Olives looking at modern-day Jerusalem. Can you bring that up, Salem? Do I have a picture? Oh, I must have not gotten it in there. That, my, my bad, not yours. Uh, so I had this really cool picture of, uh, of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And you would see the Dome of the Rock. Well, where the Dome of the Rock is, that's where the temple used to be. And so Jesus is sitting down, looking down upon this temple, and he's just said these very shocking words. And so the brothers, Peter and Andrew, along with the brothers James and John, they see Jesus looking out over the temple. His words still reverberating in their mind and heart. So they make their way over, and they just very quietly ask, Hey, uh, Jesus, when are these things going to take place? In fact, here's how Mark records them asking it. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, the uh, ESV has in here the, the little phrase, these things, has it in there twice. The second these things gets defined better in Matthew chapter 24. Verse 3 says, as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things be? And, and listen here, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, the disciples think they're asking one question. Jesus' words were just really, really bothersome. And, and so they want to understand what is happening, but it's all blurry. So they're hoping Jesus can be the corrective lenses and clear things up for them. But you see, in their mind... The only thing that could create the, the destruction of the temple has to be the end of the world. I mean, look how impressive this building is. The only way this thing could be destroyed is if the world is ending. 
And so they unknowingly asked Jesus two questions. When will the destruction of the temple be? And when will the world end and you return? Now they think they're just asking the one question, but really they're asking two. And Jesus sets out to answer both. So the first thing that we see, Jesus answers them saying that this thing will be destroyed in 70 AD. Now he doesn't tell them the the date that it will happen. But we know that in 66 AD, Israel decides, we're sick of paying taxes to Rome. We're basically governing ourselves. Why do we even need Rome anyway? We want to be autonomous, so we're on our own. They, in a sense, declare independence. Well, Rome kind of liked the money coming in. They want to exert their power and influence. They want to be the Roman Empire. So they're not going to just let Israel go rogue. And so they march in. For four years, a war takes place. And Rome wins, and in 70 AD, they utterly destroy the temple. Most people think that is what Jesus is talking about throughout Mark 13. We'll we'll look at that here in a minute. But at the same time, these guys also ask Jesus, and what will your coming and what will the end look like? And so Jesus is also answering that. And that's where things get really, really messy and blurry in this whole entire chapter. Uh, I started working through, typically when I start working on a sermon, uh, I, I read through the passage. Sometimes we'll read through it again. Occasionally I'll grab another translation and, and read through there and, and just try to wrap my mind around it. And, and what is it God wants to say through this passage to the Riverwood family? And then as I work through it, I end up having questions. And so that's when I begin to consult commentaries. This week, I had a lot of questions. And so I reached over and grabbed one commentary. This one's been really, really helpful. It helps me understand some of the background, the cultural context in in which these scriptures are being uh, written. It helps me also understand like maybe what other religions were saying or philosophers or history happening. So I pull it out and I start looking through it. And it starts making a very compelling case that most of Mark 13 is about AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. That position is known as the preterite, or preterist uh, position. And, and I started looking at it going, wow, I hadn't seen those things, realized those things. And I'm thinking, like, maybe these preterists have more to their argument than I originally thought. Uh, but then I still had questions, so I picked up another tra- uh, commentary. This one had become highly recommended a, a couple years ago, and so I, I plunked the money down and I bought it, and I've really enjoyed it. It's been really, really helpful. And I started looking at it. And it starts making a kind of opposite case that much of this is about the end times. Okay, so now I'm even more confused. So it just on Twitter this past week, I just happened upon a scholar who has a 30-minute video all about Mark 13 verses 1 through 13. And I start watching it. He made some great arguments, but he basically agreed with the first commentary. This is all about the destruction of the temple. Okay, so maybe they are right. So then I consult one more. It's a seminary professor. He's written all these notes on the scriptures. And I start looking through it. And he starts arguing that, no, most of this is about the end of the world. So by this time, I'm just like, what in the world? What is this saying? Because here you've got guys who are really, really smart, far more educated than I am. And yet they're disagreeing with one another. So what are we to do? Like, do we just pick a camp and go with it and just reject everything else? You know, do we kind of act very American and just kind of pick and choose? Well, I kind of like the way the guy said that. And all this sounds kind of good and hodgepodge our own theology together. 
Or do we just reject the whole thing? Ah, just too confusing. I just don't want to deal with it. As I've studied it this week, here's where I've landed. But before I share where I've landed, I just want to say the guys that I just referred to, they are. They are so far more educated than I am. These guys have multiple doctorates. They know the Greek. I I don't. And, and, And so... What I'm about to say, take with a huge grain of salt, okay? This is not biblical truth. This is just little old Aaron Bird working through this and kind of settling on this. But here's where I'm, I'm landing right now. Prophecy throughout the scriptures has kind of this dual layer to it. Meaning, it is often prophesied to a specific group of people at a certain time in history, and we then later see in the near future it fulfilled. But because there's this dual layer to it, we see it also fulfilled at another time, often in the person or work of Jesus. Let me give you an example. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses is talking to the people, and he says to them that God would raise up a prophet like him to lead the people. That ended up being fulfilled shortly after this in the person of Joshua. Joshua had been serving as Moses' right-hand man, but it wasn't just assumed he'd assume the mantle. And yet God chooses Joshua. Joshua then becomes that leader who leads the people across the Jordan River into the promised land and leads them in battle. And in fact, God shows up to Joshua and says, do not fear, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. God chose this man. And so we see the fulfillment. God raised up another prophet like Moses in the person of Joshua. And yet in the book of Acts, the apostles use this exact same passage to say it's about Jesus. Because just as God used Moses to bring the people out of slavery to Egypt, God used Jesus to bring us out of slavery to sin. Jesus is the true and better Moses. And so therefore, it was fulfilled in Joshua, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ, the dual layer. So what I suspect is happening in Mark 13, my conjecture, is that there is a dual layer going on. That the things that happened at the, uh, I should say the top one, that on the surface, much of what Jesus is talking about is about the destruction of the temple. But that because the things that happen in the destruction of the temple get echoed into the future and happen on a broader and deeper level with the destruction of the world. And I see some of this in what Jesus says. So if you still have your Bible open there, pick it up with me at verse 5 where we left off. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The first thing you see there, he says in verse six, many will come in my name saying, I am he. In other words, Jesus is saying along will come these false prophets. Well, if you go into history, you see history records some of these false prophets that came after Jesus. If if you look even in the book of Acts in in chapter five, a a rabbi named uh, Gamaliel is talking to the Sanhedrin. And he references a couple of these. Uh, A couple guys, one was named, I think, uh, uh, Tertullian, 
right? Uh, I want to get this right. Oh, Thutis. Uh, Thutis and then a Judas of Galilee. And, and Jose, uh, Josephus, the famous uh, Jewish historian, also refers to some of these guys. Right? So there were these false prophets that, that had come along. And certain people would follow along behind them. Like, this is the Messiah. And then the person would be killed and things would just kind of fall away. But those things had been happening leading up to the time that the temple was destroyed. Well, in the book of Revelation, we get indication that there will be similar things happening leading up to the end of the world. As you read through the book of Revelation, you see some false prophets. You see uh, a false priest. Uh, a couple of uh, There's a dragon, a couple of beasts. But then ultimately, there's this character called the Antichrist. And it's all happening at the end of the world. Another example. Uh, Jesus here talks about earthquakes down in verse 8. Well, Josephus, the, that Jewish historian I just referred to, he said that in 62 AD, there was a big earthquake in Pompeii. And then there was another one in 67 AD in the region of Palestine. 67 AD is just three years away from the destruction of the temple. There are these earthquakes, things leading up. Well, when it comes to the end times, if you study the book of Revelation, you will see five different earthquakes referenced. Again, it seems that there's this dual layer. It's fulfilled with the, you know, at, at what Jesus said for the destruction of the temple, but it also echoes into to the time, end times. And, and we see it again. I mean, I, I think the same thing we could talk about with kingdoms. We could talk about, you know, some of these other things. I think there might be this dual layer. However, I don't think all of Mark 13 has that dual layer. For instance, if you go over to verses 24 through 27, you hear Jesus say this. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And when they see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. As I read that, I don't think those things happened in AD 70. I didn't find anything that indicated that, that historians recorded stars falling out from, from the heavens, the sun darkening, and that suddenly Jesus appeared to everyone in the clouds. Now, we hear some of this language right here echoed in portions of the Old Testament, uh, verses uh, 24 and 25. There's allusions there to a passage in Isaiah. We also see some of this in First uh, and Second Thessalonians. We see some of this in, in Revelation. And almost all of it is apocalyptic language referring to the end of the world. And so that's where we see these things taking place. So I don't think this is about AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. I do think it's about the end. However, I could be wrong. The, the preterists, they have an explanation for why they think even 24 through 27 is actually about AD 70. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. That's why I say, I don't think you're going to walk out today having all of this make absolute, be absolutely clear, have complete clarity. But you know what? I'm actually okay with that. You see, so often we allow ourselves to get caught up in details. We want everything to absolutely fit. And what that does is that actually gets us distracted from that which matters most. You see, all throughout this whole chapter, one thing has been shining clear. 
and that is Jesus himself. What we discover is that this whole entire thing has Jesus at the center. Look look at it with me again. Go back to verse 6. As Jesus starts talking, he says, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. So this all starts with these false messiahs, these false prophets, basically saying, I'm, I'm Jesus, or I'm the Messiah, trying to get people to follow them because they know it all centers on Christ. So they're trying to proclaim to be the one that this is all about. Go down to verse 9. After telling them to be on their guard because they're going to appear before councils, he says, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. They're there to share the gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus who died on a cross and rose again from the dead. It's all about him. And so part of what's going to happen, and you see it that throughout the book of Acts, these guys end up standing before governors and kings and they make their plea. They share about Jesus, the one who died on a cross at the hands of the Romans, but he rose again from the dead. It's about Christ. Or even that passage that I just read, which I said was all about just the end times. That verse 24 to 27, 26 and 27 says, And then they will see the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a phrase that Jesus adopts for himself from the book of Daniel. To him, it is a messianic title. It, this is him declaring, I am the one. I am God the Son. He's the Son of Man. And you will see him coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he, Jesus referring to himself, will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. To me, it is clear. This is all about Jesus. He is at the center of this, which actually makes sense because he's been at the center of all of Mark. Everywhere we've gone, there's Jesus. This has all been about him. So chapter 13 is no different. And, And so I think in light of this, we should be asking ourselves two questions. Number one, Well, actually, I I wouldn't say questions. I I think we should walk away with two things. Number one, I think you should actually be encouraged. Too often when it comes to this apocalyptic type language, temples being destroyed, end of the world, the sun darkening, stars falling, it it starts to get scary. It's confusing. And so sometimes we just want to be like an ostrich and put our head in the proverbial sand. We just want to ignore it all. Or, or maybe because it's so divisive, you got people saying, no, it's about the temple. No, it's about end times. You just like, I just, I just want to wash away it and, and just have everyone be a happy family. And so we, we just don't deal with it. But as you read through Jesus's words, and I encourage you, go back and read all of Mark 13 today. As you read through it, realize it's all in red. They're the words of Jesus. It's the Olivet Discourse because he's the one on the Mount of Olives giving this speech. Which means if he's able to point all this out, he's in control. Now, he admits down in verse uh, uh, 32 that he does not know the day or the hour that these things will happen. Only the Father does. But just because he doesn't know exactly when it will happen, if you read through it, it's clear he knows what will happen. That should actually comfort you. It should encourage you. Because if he's saying, I know what the end of the world is going to be like. So be on your guard, but take courage. Then I think also when your world is falling apart and it feels like your life is being destroyed, you're going through your own 80, 70. He's still in control. He's still there. He's got you. 
And so I hope that you will read this and actually not get distracted by all this end time stuff and instead see Jesus is in control. He's sovereign. And this would encourage you and comfort you. But also, I think this should challenge us. As I was working on this uh, passage this week, um, actually, this was just a couple days ago, I kind of get to this part as I'm working on it. And all of a sudden, the thought hits me that if Jesus is at the center of Mark 13, he needs to be the center of my life. And so that's the question for you. Is Jesus the center of your life? If you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know I'm glad you're here. When we started Riverwood back in 2014, we did not start with a dream to steal Christians from other churches so we could have a nice, happy family and be comfortable and sing some songs together. Our goal is to help people who feel spiritually disconnected from God to find him and follow him. We believe that the image of God is in you. That sin entered into the world and has taken that image and twisted it. It's distorted it. It tried to have its own AD 70. The problem was, even though it destroyed it, it did not eliminate it. The image of God is still in you. And so that means God is passionate for you. So we started this church to help you learn this, to know this, to believe this, and to follow the one who died for you. You see, because of our sin, the penalty of that sin is death. But that's the whole Jesus story. That's the gospel. Jesus died our death for us to then give us the life that God always intended for us to live. We want to see that image within you absolutely restored so that the image of God shines forth. And then you will look like Jesus so that you will love like him and live like him. And that way, then you can go and be a blessing. So that means you have to let Jesus be the center of your life. Most people, when they realize that this gospel story is true, they take a moment to pray. In just a little bit, we're going to go to communion. We're going to turn our lights down. Jake and the band are going to come up and lead us in a song. And if you are not that follower of Jesus yet, but you're now realizing it's true, then what I encourage you to do during this holy time is just commit your life to Christ and let him become the center. Most people, they confess their sins in that moment. And then declare that because Jesus died on a cross for them, gave his life for them, they're now going to give their life to follow him. As I look around the room, I see a lot of my church family. Some of you have gotten to baptize. Some of you, I, I, I've seen you come to Christ. I, or many of you, I've heard your stories. And I, I know that you would say you're a follower of Jesus. Sometimes in life, we're kind of like a car that gets its alignment out. And we start drifting. It takes work to kind of get back. If you find yourself drifting right now, it's realizing that you haven't let Jesus be the center. It doesn't mean you've forgotten about him. It doesn't mean you stopped worshiping him. I mean, maybe you spent time reading the Bible today before you came to church. But as you really take stock of your life, maybe you realize I haven't been letting him be the center. That right now, the center of my life is work. The center of my life is school. The center of my life is this relationship. The center of my life is this health crisis I'm going through. The center of my life is, is this financial issue I'm facing. Like, that is all that consumes you. And right now, Jesus is just saying, you let me be the center again? 
I love you. I'm with you. I'm for you. Even if you feel like you're going through your own AD 70, I got you. I'm with you. I can hold you together. Let me be the center. That's why I encourage you. If you are a follower of Jesus, as we move into this time of communion, would you let that wafer remind you of the body of Jesus? Would you let that cup be the blood of Jesus, which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins? And would you take that and bring that into you? And that you might be reminded that this story is to be the center of your life. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer right now is that you would work. That in this time of communion, that you would touch the hearts and minds of everyone that is here, whether in person or online. That that you would draw us to you and that we would allow you to recenter us. To see that, that, that Mark 13 is all about Jesus. And so therefore our lives are to be all about Jesus. So God, I pray you do right now what you need to do. That we would not get distracted, whether it be distracted by the, the, the minutia uh, of Mark 13. Or to get distracted by the minutia of our daily lives. That instead we would come to that which is most important. Your precious son, who you sent to this earth. To die the death we should have died. But instead you then gave us the life you always intended for us to live. So right now, Father, we make this next moment all about you. About your son. About his work on the cross and through the empty tomb. Allowing you to do in us what you need to. Because God, you want to do a great work through us. So help us in this next holy moment to completely surrender to you. Help us, Father, to recenter on Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. At any time during the song, you're free to go to the communion elements. You also have the freedom to remain seated, to just pray. If you want to stand and sing, you totally may. If you have some things you need to deal with, if you have a person you need to text or call, you totally feel, feel free to do what you need to do. This is about us connecting with him. So let us now do this in remembrance of him.